Today on the show, I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. I've met her before, and now I can kind of consider her my friend. I hope we're friends. Um, <laughs> she's brilliant, so I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Jen Berman onto the show. She is a urologist. She is a sexual health expert. She is on The Doctors all the time. She's a New York Times bestselling author, and she is an advocate for women's health. So we're so excited to have you on the show. We Thank clap. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of course. So Dr. Berman and I met recently in New York City, um, and I don't think that most people know that, I mean, you say urologist and you think about treating men, I think, specifically, (laughs) but you treat women. That is your specialty and your focus, right? Yeah. Well, female urology and female sexual health is my focus, but Mm -hmm. the field of urology or general urology is male, men, women, children, Mm -hmm. young people, old people. That's why I chose it. I wanted to do a surgical subspecialty, but I liked urology because it spanned, you know, both sexes, all demographics, cancer, infertility, you know, incontinence, mm-hmm. pro, you know, it, it was, um, it was extremely diverse and interesting. And generally patients are healthy with an acute problem that you can fix. And that's mm-hmm. why I chose that field. And then I subspecialized after I did my residency in urology in female urology and reconstructive surgery, which is a lot to do with the bladder and prolapse and incontinence in the pelvic floor. Mm-hmm. And, but through that process and through throughout my residency, I sexual health and erectile dysfunction is a huge part of urology. Mm. You know, that's what the the focus is and the medications. There's numerous medications that are available for male erectile dysfunction and products and implants and rings and tools. And I noticed when I was in my residency that um, that there was a disparity in how we as healthcare professionals were addressing male versus female sexual health. And I, you know, made it my personal, personal mission to, um, you know, to sort of forge a new field in, in medicine, which didn't exist. Doctors at that time were, you know, as long as you could have sex without pain and get pregnant, that was all that we were trained to think about, care about, or worry about. And issues related to satisfaction, enjoyment, lubrication, arousal, orgasm, libido, all of those things weren't things that doctors talked to their mm-hmm. patients about. That was like mental health or, you know, have a glass of wine or find a new husband. They weren't things that we <laughs> talked about. And, um, you know, when Viagra became approved for men, women were coming out of the woodwork into the clinic where I, in, when I was in training. And, you know, I, I, I was overwhelmed by the stories that they were they were they were recounting and the complaints that they had. And when I reached out to my, you know, my my upper level residents, my chief residents, the attendings of my department, the GYN department, the endocrinology department, I you know hit hit a wall. And that's when you know I I decided that there really is a need for research in this in this field in this area pertaining to sexual health. It does relate to female urology, which is sort of how I I tied it. 
And, you know, I've been doing work in that area and that field, female urology and sexual health, you know, for throughout my career. Mm, that's so fascinating. Um, I know that you've definitely been a pioneer for women, specifically when it comes mm. to sexual health, and I want to get into that. Um, I think one of the first questions I want to ask you um, for our listeners, um, because before I started Love Wellness, I just, I, I knew that urologists existed, but I just assumed that it was a uh, it was for men. I didn't even have any concept that like, oh, I have a problem and I'm going to go see a urologist or, you know, a urogynecologist. And so, um, when should women be coming to see you as a urologist mm -hmm. versus going to see their OBGYN? Sort of what mm -hmm. is like the split in symptoms? Like what do you treat versus what your OBGYN should treat? Because I think there's a lot of confusion mm -hmm. or not even being very knowledgeable about the specific discipline mm -hmm. that you practice in. Yeah. So um, the gynecologist is the reproductive track. So your uh, menstruation, fertility, the uterus, the ovaries, the vagina kind of expands both fields, mm -hmm. but so that's reproductive health. And the and a urologist focuses on the genitourinary symptom, genitourinary tract, which is your kidneys, your ureter, your bladder, the pelvic floor. Um, the the uh, there's a lot of um, congenital anomalies and abnormalities of the genitourinary tract. Pediatric urology is its mm. own field, but from the standpoint of a woman, um, the gynecologist is a woman should see a gynecologist for a routine um, reproductive health, be it for birth control, be it for pap smears, be it for irregularities in their period. Mm -hmm. um, and, just, and, and gynecologists can also act as primary care doctors for your routine um, health exam, you know, for, for your annual mammogram, for what, whatever else is going on. Uh, they can also treat, you know, mild UTIs and things along those 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 lines. Mm -hmm. However, if it's complicated, meaning a woman's getting a recurrent urinary tract infection, meaning more than two to four per year, mm -hmm. that would be, that's, that's considered a complicated urinary tract infection. And that would be referred to your urologist. So recurrent urinary tract infections, symptoms of frequency, urgent, any urinary symptom mm -hmm. that is not due to a, an infection. Many times women will have symptoms of frequency, urgency, discomfort in their bladder, not necessarily have an infection. And that would be um, referred to a urologist. Anything related to urinary symptoms, you know, urgency to go to the bathroom, frequency, urgency, and leakage, leakage of any sort. A lot mm -hmm. of women, as they become menopausal, will experience stress urinary incontinence and urge incontinence, and that's something that we treat. And, you know, finally, at least as far as female urology goes, um, prolapse is what after as we age and become menopausal the support to the bladder and urethra tends to fall and after babies too by the way um and prolapse is is another big part mm. but female urology and sexual health you know at least as far as i was concerned and am concerned go hand in hand for that matter gynecology and sexual health go, go together. Gynecologists, at the time when I was doing all this work, it shocked me that gynecologists weren't like grabbing onto that, this field and doing the research and mm -hmm. doing the work. They, they, they just weren't. 
And um, yeah, so it, there's uro, there's something called urogynecologists and female urologists. That we both do the same thing, mm-hmm. but we've gotten to that point through different uro, urology. Gynecologists go through an OBGYN tract, mm-hmm. and urologists go through a general surgery and urology tract. So in my opinion, we're better surgeons. Mm-hmm. We're better trained. We know how to get out of trouble in the operating. We can you know put open somebody's belly, their chest. We do two years of general surgery, at least we did at that time, mm-hmm. um, not to minimize the training of, of gynecologists because they, they, you know, I, that was more said in jest. But, um, but the, the techniques that we use are slightly different and the comfort with um, working in the abdomen is, is, is a little bit, um, little bit different. But mm-hmm. either one, anytime you're having a, a, a urinary symptom that isn't due to a routine um, urinary tract infection, you should see a urologist. Interesting. And I know that sexual health is a big part of your practice. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of started to touch on that back when you were a resident and mm-hmm. Viagra came out and, you know, what is there for women, I mm-hmm. assume, is the question that you were asking yourself and what your patients were asking mm-hmm. you. Can you sort of walk me through that journey and how in your practice you guys approach sexual health for mm-hmm. women? And do you have people specifically coming in to learn from you about that area of their mm-hmm. life? Yeah. So, so what happened? And I was only, I was in my late twenties at the time. So I, you know, I personally wasn't, wasn't experiencing any changes in my sexual function Mm -hmm. at the time. So, but what happened was that, you know, as women poured in and they started um, reporting complaints related to low libido, um, low satisfaction, pain with intercourse, dryness, lack of arousal, difficulty achieving orgasm, in a bit lack of sexual desire, you know, lack of interest in sex, almost sometimes an aversion where it takes mm. on an aversion where women will do whatever they can to avoid intimacy for fear that intimacy will lead to the expectation of sex. Um, and as I started to, you know, to see these patients and talk to these patients and try to understand like what, how do I, how do I address and treat these problems? I had a very male oriented approach you know, in my training, so, well, we check blood flow, you know, like I treated it like a peanut. Okay, we're mm-hmm. going to look at blood flow. We're going to look at muscle. We're going to look at nerves. And um, because urologists had really paved the way for that, that type of research in terms of what was going on in the penis, mm-hmm. it was very easy for me to do that basic science clinical research in terms of the anatomy of clitoral and vaginal sensation and blood flow. We had, you know, cell cultures and animal models. So I basically took what I learned in the penis and applied it, you know, to the, the clitoris and vagina um, and the female just to understand the physiology of blood flow and nerve function, so mm. arousal and orgasm. But the problem was after that, what I realized is that, you know, it's not all about the plumbing and the electricity. It's about, you know, what the woman is seeing, feeling experiencing it's emotional so, for a the lot emotional of yeah. aspect of stuff and as soon as you talk about emotions you know to a surgeon you know the chairman of my my <laughs> department may he rest in peace steve jacobs who is an amazing man an amazing surgeon an amazing urologist when i when you start talking about feelings <laughs> to him he's like you know get out of my office so it was um I realized at that point that, you know, the mind-body connection in women is extremely important part of sexual function response. Mm -hmm. Not to say that it isn't in men and they don't have feelings, but they're much more able to be goal-oriented, focused, 
you know, sort of compartmentalized. They may have lots of other stuff, but they can focus on the task at hand, show up, get an erection, regardless of necessarily, you know, drama and going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. They're, they're much more adept than women are, or most women, not all women, but most women in terms of blocking out, you know, issues. We, we are great multitaskers. We can do multiple things. We can take care of our families, our kids, our works, our jobs, our plants, our dogs. But, uh, but when it comes time to block all that out and focus on the task at hand, it's, it's challenging mm-hmm. for, for a lot of women. And so, you know, as soon when I started to put those pieces together and realize, you know, the emotional component and the feeling of what libido is, um, I, I first tried to determine, okay, well, hormonally, um, what is at play? Mm-hmm. And I was doing a lot of the early research with testosterone, and testosterone is the primary hormone that impacts libido in men. Well, we, I determined, we determined that it's also really important for women, and women can have low testosterone levels for a number of reasons. So I started testing hormone levels and looking at estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, adrenal gland hormones, growth hormones, things that people weren't doing. Gynecologists certainly weren't. You know, they had a an, you know, very specific algorithm for menopause mm-hmm. and hormones, but not, you know, if you were perimenopausal or premenopausal, drawing hormones was something that you only did did if you had a tumor or some sort, you know, it wasn't yeah. necessary for this. So I started looking into that and, um, and realizing that optimizing hormone balance is important for sexual, uh, the sexual feelings, the perceptions, the way that our brain interprets sexual cues, mm. the way that our brain processes sexual imagery, sexual contact, sexual touch, that hormones are necessary for, for that part of our brains to be to be optimized and um yeah so then so that i started i had to learn on my own how to what to you know how to prescribe what to prescribe what doses how to compound at that at that time and even now testosterone is not fda approved for use in women but i found a compounding pharmacist and that back then they thought i was insane Mm -hmm. you know juicing women up with with testosterone but i saw very quickly how it you know the impact that optimizing hormone balance and optimizing you know blood flow and sensation can transform a woman who is suffering and struggling and not able to be intimate with her partner and who lose it lost her self esteem and her you know when when you're not a, when intimacy is impacted and you're not able to be intimate in the way you want to be with your partner it the the trickle down effect of what that impacts not only you know your self esteem your your feelings about yourself as a woman your you know life satisfaction like everything sort starts to fall apart that's another thing that i learned in my mm-hmm. 20s way before i was married how important sex is to relationships i always knew it was important but i thought you know you get old and you kind of go and and i realized early on that that it's critical to who we are as human beings, regardless of our age. And maybe we can't continue with normal, like, penovaginal intercourse when we're 80 and 90, but sexual intimacy and being able to feel those feelings is, you know, is extremely important to our overall happiness and and life satisfaction, not to mention relationship satisfaction. That's so interesting. Nobody is talking about this. I mean, I know that you are talking about this, but 
women are not talking about this. This is a, a new conversation for me. I mean, how many women come into your practice and you start talking to them about testosterone and they don't even know that they make testosterone because we identify it with men? Yeah, the, a lot of them don't know. And then a lot of them, if they do know, have a lot of concerns. Well, am I going to, you know, what's going to happen to my voice? Am I going to start growing hair? Am I going hair? to grow a mustache? Yeah, right. <laughs> Would be my concern. That hair growth, oily skin, acne, those are potential risks and side effects of, mm. of testosterone if given in high doses, which is why you need to be, back to the other conversation we were having before we started, um, why you need to be under the care of a physician and Mm -hmm. you need to have your levels monitored and Mm -hmm. you need to um, be um, proactive about about your sexual health equally as you are, about your vaginal health, cardiovascular health, mental health, all Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. So before we started recording, Dr. Berman and I were talking about telemedicine. I had a lot of questions for her um, and I just sort of wanted to get her thoughts on it because you see a lot of prescription products being made available by phone and through the internet. And I have my own opinions about it, you know, regardless of what they are. I guess I'm curious if you could have a conversation with our listeners about the safety of, you know, these new companies that have come out that are providing women, you know, with birth control over the phone. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's a company that, um, provides women and they were advertising it as something that you should take before you go go on a first date, but it's like a, um, it's a drug that's like a performance anxiety drug and they were advertising it. I I won't, I'll tell you the name after, but they were advertising this performance anxiety drug. Um, do they calling it performance anxiety? That's interesting because performance anxiety is, is not sexual performance. Like, uh, um, like I will get up on stage to give a presentation and I'll get too nervous and I'll forget. It was like an, it was like a, it's like an anxiety performance drug and they were prescribing it for women as something that they should take before they go on a first date so that they don't get nervous on their first date. And this company was ripped apart in the press and ripped apart on social media um, because they were advertising this product that I think, you know, it can be dangerous for your heart and all of these things. Mm -hmm. And they were advertising it as something that women should take before they go out on a date. And I guess I'm curious, I I know that having access to birth control is really important. Mm -hmm. um, And I absolutely support that. But my heart is torn when it comes to telemedicine, because I wonder, like, why are these companies pushing products that have a specific use case for different use cases that mm-hmm. feel sort of disingenuous um and when should you really go see the doctor because for me like getting birth control over the phone it's great but i'm worried that women are not going to go in and see their obgyn every year for their like yearly preventative care mm-hmm. appointment and so just talk to me a little bit about that I, I'm okay. just curious to get your opinion so you know because I have feelings about it <laughs> <laughs> and your feelings are valid and I hear them and they're you know they're rational and reasonable but coming from the other side from my from a, you know a medical perspective mm-hmm. and somebody that is um, working in the field and has seen these companies evolve and have consulted with many of them the prescriptions that are being prescribed 
in that way. Well, first I would say, you know, just as a fun sort of offset, I would do like recon, like to do sort of an undercover, go on one of them and mm-hmm. see what's involved. Mm-hmm. And what, and, and then, and you know, see, see the process that you're going through, throw mm-hmm. some curveballs in there because it is extremely, the questions that you're asked, the forms that you need to fill out, the detailed level of background and history that's required on the male ED side. There's a lot of telemedicine for male erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Something that, you know, that's shameful that people don't want to talk about, you, know, you don't want to have to go to your doctor about. They made it safe and comfortable and convenient mm-hmm. to have these conversations from your own home mm-hmm. about ED. And we've been studying ED for decades. We know this safety and efficacy of those drugs and we know who can take it and who can't sure and the the questionnaires and the medical histories that that are required in order for a guy to get it Mm -hmm. are are pretty rigorous and 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 granted patients can lie but they could lie in your office as well sure so i felt comfortable from the male side from the female side of things you know birth control pills there is going to be a time in our lifetime in the not too distant future that birth control is going to be available over the counter Mm. we won't need to be going to see um, see a gynecologist or a doctor in order to obtain hormonal contraceptives. That mm-hmm. that is well, maybe I don't know about this this legislation, but sure. within our lives, you know, I that that's that's in, that's coming down down the road, and having access to. Um, to medications that help us to optimize our reproductive health, our sexual health, um, protect our reproductive, to help us make smart and safe choices Mm -hmm. pertaining to our sex and pregnancy and and things along those lines, in my mind is a, um, you know, is a, is our constitutional right. So I'm an advocate for anything um, that can help to optimize that and access through telemedicine when it comes to birth control is, you know, increases you know a doctor's office can only see so so many women Mm -hmm. but through you know the 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 web and social media you know millions of women are connecting being able to learn from each other get the companies are being able to gather data from these women and to optimize medications for the women and also care in terms of the the, what you said something about writing things off label i i'm going to tell you that as um not that from a pharmaceutical company perspective, but from a physician perspective, we I have had to, through the course of my career, prescribe things off-label because they just didn't exist for women. Mm-hmm. They, nothing was FDA-approved. Mm-hmm. Now we do have two or three medications that are have gone through the you know the FDA it's much more you know rigorous much more challenging there's been you know a lot of controversy over you know getting sexual health drugs approved by the FDA but that that aside uh, a physician a physician we're not talking about a company or telemedicine being able to use their fund of knowledge what they've learned based on the research that they can read about and learn about and understand if they can understand the mechanism of action and the safety of that drug mm-hmm. in this circumstance like for instance I'll, I'll tell you one that i used to use back is called selegiline which is a dopamine agonist that was fda 
approved for use in, in Parkinson's disease. So it was mm-hmm. an anti-Parkinsonian drug that increases dopamine levels. Well, back in that time, and even now, we know that dopamine and the dopamine response cycle, it, the pleasure reward centers in the brain is really important for arousal and orgasm and even libido. So increasing dopamine levels, optimizing dopamine helps to improve that. So I was prescribing off, um, off-label selegiline in a different dose, not in the same dose of parsley, to women. To, and, and, you know, I didn't do a clinical trial, but I, but was giving it to a lot. Now we have better ones and different ones. And, you know, there's an inhaler and so lingual ones. But, but at that time, that was all that was available. So I'm not against, you know, with, with information and with research and with care, prescribing things off-label that may benefit a patient. Um, in terms of the medication you're, you're talking about, it sounds like you didn't tell me what it was. It's the first I'm hearing about, but it sounds like a beta blocker. Technically, a blood, uh, antihypertensive drug. Very old school, though. I mean, it's all, it, it, it's not the first line of therapy anymore for, for high blood pressure because there's many more that are more specific and effective and don't have like you know the side effects. But in it, but in low doses, it is prescribed to um, to women and men for you know anxiety for quote-unquote, nerves. and it, But isn't it n- normal to feel nervous when you're going on a first date? Yes. So normal if you're nervous before you're going on a first date. So they've taken it to, you know, an, another another level. But some people... <laughs> it's a reach for me. <laughs> I mean, you'd be surprised. Some people are paralyzed, you know, when it comes to meeting a new person. Like you and mm-hmm. I, we let's go out, you know, we can have fun, whatever. Some people don't drink. So, you know, a glass of wine or two, yeah. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. Some people don't feel comfortable drinking. Some people have anxiety or fear about, you know, someone they haven't known, irrational fears. Mm-hmm. And so that they, we might, they might have taken it to another level by saying going on a date, going on a first date, it could be anything for a first time. I can say I've used that medication. When I was in residency, I used to get so ner- nervous speaking to my peers and all, and the chairman of departments at urology meetings. I could go on TV and mm-hmm. Oprah and, you know, CNN with, with Diane Soy live to Good Morning America, three, two, one, you know, and I, and not bat an eye. Mm-hmm. But as soon as I had to stand up in front of my peers that were reviewing me and analyzing, you know, is she, what I, I felt, you know, I had extreme anxiety and to where, you know, your heart's beating and your chest is tight and your shape, you know, all cold and clammy. And I took in, it's Indorol, um, Levetalol, Propanolol before public speaking um, when it, throughout my residency. And it finally got to a point after time, after, you know, I, you know three, four, five times, then my brain was, okay, I can do it. So you still feel nervous, but you don't have the symptoms, that tightness, that your voice, the, you know, the shaking, the cold, clammy, the like fog. What am I saying? You can think, you can deliver the information. I was calm. I could, I, I, I could keep on track. Um, and it really, um, and it's been used a lot for, um, public speaking, people that have anxiety about public speaking. Mm -hmm. So, you know, again, it's a stretch and to publicize that and advertise, you know, sort of the dating aspect of it it is a little bit much, but, um, you know, some people have social anxiety and and in my opinion, it's better 
than a benzodiazepine, which other doctors would be prescribing. If a woman went to, you know, I'm so anxious, I don't want to go today, you know, they'd give her, you know, a a Valium or Ativan or something, which is worse, by the way, because that's habit forming. It acts on the benzoreceptor in the brain, is associated with a lot of different things. So um, if you had to choose one or the other, if someone needs to take a medication for anxiety related to social anxiety on any level, Mm -hmm. it's, in my clinical opinion, safer um, than than some of the other medications that would or could be prescribed. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, a, a lot of the backlash um, was specific to kind of what I was talking about. It was like, well, you know, maybe if you have, you know, anxiety to that degree, you should have like a close relationship with your doctor and be mm-hmm. working through that issue and not be, you know, getting prescribed a beta blocker (laughs) by the telephone, you know, so that you can feel more comfortable on a first date. And a lot of women went further and said, you know, I'm relying on my natural instincts to know if I should feel nervous on a date. Like, is the person I'm with making me feel nervous because Mm -hmm. there's something wrong about this situation? And will this drug that I take potentially cloud my judgment Mm -hmm. and um, force me to miss something and put myself in a situation that feels dangerous? Benzodiazepines and alcohol could, Mm -hmm. but this one, you're very acute. Like Mm -hmm. you're, 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 fight or flight response isn't in full blown, you know, flare, mm-hmm. but you're, you've got your wits about you. You you're can sharp. think clearly and you're sharp and not impaired in any way. That's interesting. So if anything, it will, um, you know, keep, allow you to react when appropriate to mm-hmm. read cues without, you know, emotion, you know, that you could, you know, pause, mm-hmm. pause, think before, you know, that it would, um, you know, provide a little bit of a buffer without, you know, causing you risk. And some people, um, you know, really have social anxiety and should see a doctor about it. Because if you have social anxiety, you know, it's not just on a date, you know, it's sort of pandemic in all areas of your life. And that's an example where, you know, yes, you know, it may be a quick fix for you to get out on a date, but um, it's a bigger issue. So you feel like they're just off on their messaging potentially on this one? I mean, they've, um, they... They should do more education around it, around mm-hmm. the condition of public service announcement about what social anxiety is, about what it looks like, mm-hmm. about, you know, educate the consumer. You know, this, this would be something if you're experiencing this, not just like, hey, you know, you feel a little nervous, pop a pill. And that's how yeah. it came across. It was mm-hmm. like, hey, like, let's medicate everybody for their normal mm-hmm. anxiety, their normal right. nervousness in situations. And mm-hmm. it, so many people were just turned off by that. My last question about this, because I don't want to harp on it. Um, does the FDA have any regulations in place for, I mean, not just telemedicine companies, but like any pharmaceutical or whatever that puts restrictions on or like approvals on the types of messaging that you can use around drugs and like what you can say and what you can't say? Because if, you know, you're using a medication for something that is for a different purpose, what were you saying mm-hmm. that that, how do you, what do the you say? The the dopamine agonist? No, not that. But like when you prescribe a certain medication for something that it's not the primary like use case for off label off label. So mm-hmm. when, you know, somebody like one of these companies is using something that's off label, like what is okay to say and what is not okay to say, because they carry a lot of liability and like the responsibility of their patients. Mm-hmm. No, um, the, the box warning on, uh, and the, the label is 
really regulated. And what pharmaceutical companies can say, what medical device companies can say, like all mm-hmm. of these, this whole rage with the vaginal re- rejuvenation machines, yeah. the Diva, the Tiva, the me, what the the claims that they, the conditions that it treats, that the product or device or medication treats, and the claims that the company makes is extremely regulated, and they have to be super careful. And there are lawyers that, that you know, work with the companies to do that. And when they breach those guidelines, there's consequences with, mm. with the FDA. And so does that apply to advertising also? Yes. Yeah. Huge. And that company that, that pushed the boundary with anxiety, you know, I don't know whether they got slapped by the FDA because yeah. it does treat social anxiety and they could say this is, you know what I mean? So sure. I'm, I, I'd be curious about that. Um, you know, the, when whenever there is mass marketing to the consumer um, and things kind of take take on a life of their their own the fda steps steps in mm-hmm. and they did with um the vaginal rejuvenation sort of flares and the claims right. that those companies were made they cracked down on that mm-hmm. um if there is sort of a flare-up around use of you know they'll they'll come in so they they definitely watch and there's definitely laws and the companies are under you know a lot of scrutiny um, the medical, you know, the, mm-hmm. the pharmaceutical companies. It used to be back in the day when I was training. It, it, things have changed. It's gotten way more rigid and strict. Back then, the pharmaceutical companies were taking us on ski trips and lunches. Whoa. And do, I mean, I remember Sheik, going Dr. to. Like, we, we were in Vail, the Ritz Carlton Vail. Like I, we, we were going everywhere, having these huge dinners. They would wine and dine us and whatever. And then, you know, things changed, and they felt that that was influencing physicians to prescribe a certain Mm -hmm. drug and it wasn't you know it was biased and so the laws and rules have changed um become really rigorous in in that regard and there's no you know there's no perks at all Mm -hmm. to any doctors and even pharmaceutical companies aren't even allowed the reps aren't even allowed and at ucla they can't come in they can't give samples um interesting the va hospital so i've had there's certain medications that i'm really um an advocate for and the rep will say, you know, we, I can't get into the VA and I'll call, you know, I, I know the chairman of the department of urology at the VA hospital happens to be a woman. And I say, you know, you, this, you ought to meet with them and it could be good on the formulary there. Mm-hmm. So, but, but it is, um, you know, there, it is tightly regulated. Mm, that's interesting. Um, okay. So let's shift focus a little bit. Um, I'd love to learn more about your own wellness routine and how take, how do you take care of yourself? Um, so on the show, we do a short segment that's called my secret wellness ritual. And we're talking about sort of like alternative approaches to wellness. Cause I think anything that you like mm-hmm. that makes you feel good can sort of be considered wellness. Um, so I always use the example of like, I like to eat pizza once a week cause it like makes me happy. <laughs> And I give myself a break. And in that own way, it is wellness. So Dr. Berman, when it comes to you, what is your secret wellness ritual? Well, I, I'd say I, I'm going to give a long answer to that because it, it that's evolved over time. And, you know, from all the years that I've been in practice and, and, see, and being a woman who's aging and seeing women, um, I've come to realize the power that our the way that we think and our brain has on our health. Mm. So the our our optimizing health 
is not only a matter of going to the doctor, getting your pap smear, taking your medication. The, you know, we need to have a mindset of health and wellness. And I've learned personally and professionally the impact that emotional stress has on our bodies and our health. And I've seen it, um, you know, in myself, I've seen it in my family members, and I see it a lot in my patients. So minimizing stress and doing things to, to reduce stress is, you know, is critical to not only health, wellness, but longevity mm. and to prevent disease and illness. And um, I think it's not going to be long before the Surgeon General mandates that all physicians need to be educated about meditation and um, inform their patients about meditation. Because I mean, there's, it's now documented, there are NIH grants, there's research that supports, reveals, demonstrates, proves that meditation helps to heal the brain, the heart, the body. And it's something that's really simple that we don't all do. Mm -hmm. And so my little, you know, little trick, and especially when I'm getting out of sorts or grieving, we talked about earlier, the lie, you know, I just lost a dog in kind of a tragic way, um, to get back centered and balanced and, and, you know, be able to function and process, you know, feelings. um, We have to, you know, be able to tap into, um, go, go into ourselves. And Mm -hmm. the best way that I know how to do that is, um, is with meditation, which has been a learning process, by the way. And, you know, what I learned early on is there is no right or wrong. Um, but you, you know, trying to quiet your mind and connect mind, body, spirit is, um, you know, a priority for me. I don't do it perfectly. I don't do it, you know, the way that I think I should all the time, but I do make an effort to do it. I do with every single patient, give them homework, give them tools, give them resources, give them guides, give them what I read, give them what I heard with to, um, to help them in that, that area as well. Because when, um, you know, the way that you think and feel impacts your health. So when patients, you know, buy into, you know, the way my, what I'm suggesting, what I'm recommending when they believe and have hope, my outcomes are better. So, so I, you know, I've learned over the times, you know, through my personal experience and through my patients, how important it is to keep our minds healthy also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, meditation has definitely gotten me through some very difficult times, you know, of like illness, depression, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever it is. And, you know, meditation really outside of all the other things that you can do for yourself was really sort of like the determining factor for me of Mm -hmm. why I finally started to turn a corner and finally started to feel better. And for me, when I, um, rely on meditation, the improvements happen really quickly. It's remarkable. Mm-hmm. You know, by day three of meditation, I start to feel so much better. My outlook changes. Mm-hmm. And so um, it is something that is really important for people to rely on. Do you have like a favorite app or program that you use? Yeah. Because everybody always asks me. <laughs> and I use Headspace, but I also do transcendental, transcendental meditation, um, depending on like <laughs> how bad I need to <laughs> meditate. Um, so is there something that you do? Do you do guided mm-hmm. meditation? What's your favorite? I do t- t- TM is sort of the standard of care and mm-hmm. that what you know sort of the father of meditation and I um, you have 
at least in my experience, you have to be learn how to do that. You yep. get a mantra that, and for me, um, that one is more challenging. You really, like you said, you really have to be like, uh, You're like okay, I'm meditating. <laughs> some people master it better. I do better with the guided meditations. I use an app called Breathe. I think it's actually mm. a paid app, but it has from five minutes to 20 minutes to 30 minutes for all different things. If I want to sleep, if mm. I'm go- I ride horses and compete, I get performance anxiety. Mm. For- I read about sports and and winning. your beta blockers. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I was scared to take them. I, you know, it crossed my mind. But then I thought, like, if I'm exercising and mm. I'm lowering my, I, I, you know, I'm okay to talk and lower my blood pressure maybe a little. But exercising, jumping a jump, I, you know, but it did cross my mind. I have that much anxiety about it when mm. I'm competing. But the, but the, there's meditations that I do before that. There's mm-hmm. meditations regarding, um, you know, abundance health, um, the love, whatever it is, sleep. And I, you know, sleep is a big thing for me too. So Mm -hmm. I had, there's lots of different options on that app. And I also always do when they come out the Oprah and Deepak and Oprah's 21 day challenge, which is, which is really amazing also. Awesome. Um, and the last question I wanted to ask you is, and maybe you just answered it because oftentimes people's secret wellness rituals are also the thing that you can't live without. Mm. But from a wellness perspective, what can you not live without? For me, it's like eight or nine hours of sleep every night. I can't function without it. Um, you know, what I have learned to li- what I thought that I could not live without was sugar and caffeine. Mm. <laughs> but I've done, um, but I've been able to really cut back on that and eliminate that. Those aren't healthy things. Those are non-healthy things, but sometimes yeah. we, we, we need those things to function. That's another conversation. But um, what the question is about what I can't live without, I would say, again, going back to my my mental health and Mm -hmm. for me it's riding my escape and my safe place is out at the barn with the horses and when I don't do that on a regular basis Mm -hmm. I start to come unglued I start to become shorter with my children I start to become more reactive and edgy I get annoyed in traffic if I'm not taking care of myself in that way Mm -hmm. Um, and I remember when I got divorced um, we, ha- I had two horses at that time and, and they were part, they were marital assets. I had to sell them mm. and I was, you know, and I did, you know, I was in, you know, work mode, you know, get this done fight. And I, so, and I sold the horses and what happened is I literally started to get sick. Mm. You know, I, uh, my stomach was hurting. I was having an abdominal cramp. They thought I had irritable bowel and I wasn't right. And I realized that, um, how, again, I, when I said personally, how, um, you know, what's going on in our minds affects, affects our bodies and our health. And so I started riding again. I started going out to the barn again. I leased a horse and I eventually bought, now I have three horses. I'm back. (laughs) But I, but I, that is, that's part of my, you know, my, um, my happiness, my mental health, my well-being, and everybody has it. it. Doesn't have to be riding horses. Some people it's walking on the beach. Some people it's knitting, crocheting, painting. Some people it's you know playing tennis, jogging, running. Some people it's walking with their dog. Whatever it is to take care of, you know that that a, a passion, a hobby, a release that makes you feel you know, happy. I love that. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, the last question that I have for you, um, with a focus on your specialty in particular, what is the takeaway that you want every listener, um, to leave with after this episode? Mm -hmm. 
I guess it is the importance of, you know, your sexual health. It's a critical component of general health and wellness. It's a critical, it's critical to life satisfaction, relationship satisfaction, job satisfaction. It's something that we kind of, as women tend to ignore, put aside, not focus on, not make a priority. And, um, it, it, it's, it's an integral part to who we are as women. I'm going to speak from a personal perspective and something that I've learned about myself is, especially in the field that I grew up in and, you know, it was very male dominated and that I'm out in the world, um, you know, like disconnected, like the top half of me is kind of in my mask, in a masculine sort of going, doing, negotiating, getting, and then, you know, but I'm still, you know, a woman. And there, there's a disconnect um, sometimes with that. And I guess it, for all of us, and if it's really important for women to honor themselves, honor their bodies, honor their femininity, not necessarily the sexual kind of, but uh, the feminine part of ourselves. And for women that are, you know, that are out there working, running companies, CEOs, doctors, lawyers that are, you know, type A kind of women, we have been cultured and, and um, conditioned to kind of not to deny that that part of ourselves Mm -hmm. and um so through this research and through this work and i'm finding more and more women are starting to um to recognize that it's not just a matter of having satisfactory sexual intercourse it doesn't hurt Mm -hmm. that the 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 aspects of who we are as sexual beings is um is you know, a continuum and a spectrum that's continuing to evolve and change and that my body's my body, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever that, that we, that we feel, um, that we feel are able to feel free, Mm -hmm. comfortable with our bodies, comfortable with our sexuality, comfortable, comfortable with our sexual orientation and that we make it a priority. And I love, you know, I love speaking to you and I love that you as a woman have made it your personal interest to pioneer products in this space and you've Mm -hmm. taken, you know, I was impressed from the moment I met you, the amount of care and attention and detail that you have, um, focused and committed to, to creating and curating this, these products for women's wellness, women's lower that we would say, I I would say reproductive urinary tract and vaginal health. Thank you. Dr. Roman, this was so great. Thank you so much. Thank you.